Hi, welcome to The Kicker. I'm Kyle Pope, editor and publisher of the Columbia Journalism Review. This week, the question of who gets to be a reporter and what counts as journalism. The lines are getting blurred, partly because of a decline in reporting resources around the country, but also in the rise of partisan news sites and fake news, as well as legitimate news gathering organizations that aren't really journalistic, but do journalism work. That's what we're going to be talking about today, that latter category, people who do real reporting, but have other hats as well, whether they're in academia or policy or whatever. Joined this week by Seamus Hughes, who's the deputy director of something called the Program on Extremism at George Washington University. Um, Seamus, thanks for coming on. Thanks for having me. So I'm really interested in... um, you know, the this question of who who other than journalist is doing journalist like work um, and what are the you know, uh, what are the dividing lines between what a traditional reporter is and what an investigator working for some other kind of group is. And and your you and your group is particularly interesting to me because you really seem to sort of you seem to navigate that particularly well. Um, just t- t- tell me a little bit about what the what the program is and what it's about. Yeah, so we launched um, four years ago, and um, we have a small staff of about 10, another 10 or so interns. We track extremism in the U.S. Um, We've been focusing mostly on ISIS, so we track all of the legal cases of anyone who's ever thought about joining the Islamic State. And so that involves looking through court records, but it also involves interviewing folks. Um, So it's a bit of an investigative animal. Yeah. You consider your definition of what you call yourself is what, an investigator? No, I, just an academic researcher. Uh-huh. Um, you know, we do investigations because that's kind of where I started my career, and that's kind of where our art is. Um, you know, you can't just find everything sitting behind a desk. And so if you want to get a sense of extremism in the U.S., you've got to have to roll up your sleeves and ask around. Before you did this, you were at uh, the Senate Committee on Homeland Security and Government Affairs, right? I, I was. I was. I spent a stint in the intelligence community, but before that I was in the Senate Homeland Security. First if you just back up, what have you noticed about the capacity of journalistic reporting, um, either on terrorism research in in general or just, uh, or specifically, or just news organizations, especially at the local level, to do kind of detailed digging? Yeah, so for the for terrorism in general, there's not a whole lot of um, reporters that have it as a beat. Like, you have national security reporters, but they've also got the Russia probe and a bunch of other things on their plate. Um, very few have a terrorism um, focus. You know, New York Times being an exception right. uh, in the Washington Post. Um, for the local reporters, it usually ends up being the federal um, court reporter who does it. So the individual who's always checking out the latest court record documents is usually the person who's also writing about terrorism. Yeah. So one of the cases that got um, a lot of attention recently for you guys is this case of this lieutenant in the U.S. Coast Guard who was um, in Maryland, I guess, and was found, was held on drug and gun charges and had been stockpiling all these weapons and this human growth hormone um, and had planned to attack people in the U.S., including media people. How did you get that? How did you get the tip on that story? Yeah, not a tip, more so that just trolling the, uh, the PACER records. Right. So if you look at, at most terrorists... By the way, it's just so everyone's clear, PACER is a online database of court records that 
really anybody can use, yeah. right? Yeah, that, and then that's kind of the nicest way to describe day search. And so, yeah, it's technically available to public, but it's also ten cents a search. Yeah, um, and then ten cents a page. So it becomes cost prohibitive for folks that are trying to search on these things. Um, and for for Hassan, we were looking at um, terrorism cases, and so that's usually going to be Maryland, Virginia, New York, California, and the occasional Illinois. So right. we go through all of the um, the filings probably once a week. Um, that have been made in there. And most of them are drug cases and most of them are, you know, child pornography or stuff like that. And occasionally get a terrorism case. And so that's kind of where this fell. I mean, but what years, where was it in Maryland specifically? Uh, so the district of Maryland. Uh, Maryland only has one district. Um, so the FBI Baltimore office had the case uh-huh. and kicked to the U.S. Attorney's office. Okay. But I mean, Maryland's not a news desert. I mean, um, uh, what, no, before you, because I think you tweeted out the um, the filing, right? Yes. And, and and as far as you knew, is that the, were you the first people to flag it? Uh, yeah, it appears so. Um, now it looks like the Washington Post also had um, an embargo copy. So I felt kind of bad about that because um, it, it looked like they posted pretty quickly after we tweeted. Uh-huh. Um, so I, I feel bad for the reporter who probably had that pretty wrapped up, and then I kind of ruined it for him. Um, but yeah, we were the first ones to, to tweet it. Then it kind of just went viral in a way that I wasn't expecting. Yeah. Well, it was a sort of extraordinary story. Um, and then yeah, it is and it isn't actually. I mean, we've seen a lot of those cases for ISIS that are similar, kind of hit lists and um, drugs and terrorism. Um, this one just was wrapped up because it had a media hit list and it had you know President Trump rhetoric in there, and it just. It was kind of wrapped in a bow and ready to go for a front page story. And so everyone ran with it after that. What is your sense of um, the level of interest in terrorism in general now among U.S. reporters? I mean, is there a sense that that's kind of a a problem that we we had and is now done? It's kind of the way it Uh, seems to me. Yeah, I think that's absolutely right. In fact, it's a hard sell when we have new reports now. So when we when we released um, reports in 2015, you know, we, it was a dime a dozen to get a reporter to, to care about it. Um, now it's a level of handholding that um, it's hard, and that's not on a reflection of the reporters; it's a reflection on the editors. Right. If it doesn't have a, a tie to politics or President Trump or any of that stuff, it doesn't lead. Right. But what do, what do you know about the level of the threat in terms of like is this something that's being way underplayed? No, I, I think it's it's probably the right balance right now. Um, in 2015, we had 65 arrests for terrorism. Uh-huh. Uh, last year, we had uh, 18, I believe. Right. So it's about right. Um, and so my, my only concern about this is you don't get long-form investigative pieces anymore on terrorism. And I think there's a lot of cool stories that just aren't getting told um, because you, you don't put an enterprise reporter on it uh, because it's not Russia. What is the mandate for uh, the program at at George Washington that you guys run? Is it just to raise awareness of who's out there and what they're doing, or what is? how do you define your mission? Yeah, it's basically taking um, nonpartisan academic research and making kind of an accessible way for the public and policymakers. Um, tell me what you guys are doing with the, um, the ISIS files with the Times. Yeah, so that was a new partnership we announced um, last fall. The New York Times is looking for an academic partner to go through about 15,000 pages of documents they collected in mostly in Mosul. And so um, because of our history of looking at terrorism, we were uh, kind of a natural partner for them. 
And we're spending like the next year or so talking to people. I mean, let's be honest. A lot of these documents are, are quite sensitive in nature. You know, land lease documents or transferring um, information from one town to another. And some of this stuff's got to be redacted, and there's a lot of ethical questions here. And so we're asking a lot of questions of people who have already dealt with this before to see if, um, you know, what we should be worried about uh, and what we should consider. And then the hope is, um, the goal is, within a year or two, we, we publish a website with um, documents out so researchers can use it. One of the problems that we have in journalism right now is that um, a lot of experienced people are getting cut um, or cut back on, and there's not the mentoring mentorship program that there had been at a lot of news organizations. So you know, young journalists are sort of thrown in into these jobs without a lot of experience. I know that you've done some training. I mean, is that a fair characterization? I have a few concerns for for young journalists. Um, mostly, as you know, I had the Jim McGee's of the world, and I'm not sure that they still have that uh, in theirs. And then the age of social media, you know, one errant tweet, um, one hint of, of partisanship that maybe was implied but not explicit, I mean, that haunts uh, a career and paints the career going forward. Uh, and I think it just makes life a little bit harder. Right. On the other hand, um, it does open a world of sources of which you didn't have before. Right. The real concern I have is um, is training journalists to go out and talk to people uh-huh. um, and not just rely on what they can find in open source collection and what they can find online. Um, you know, we do a lot of collection on on, on um, court records, but court records only tell you part of the story, right? If I've got a nugget, I'm going to go fly to Ohio and figure out who knows this guy who got arrested uh, in Columbus. Yeah. And you got to know how to convince somebody to talk to you who's, you know, also under investigation by the FBI. Mm-hmm. You don't really, unless you get that level of training, uh, that doesn't necessarily come naturally to people. What are the other... What are your other concerns? Well, I mean, just in, in terms of um, the world we live in, in terms the need to have encrypted apps and to have some level of security uh, when you talk to sources. I think it's, it's incumbent on us, on journalists, to not um, burn their sources. And I think in this world now, it, it becomes very easy um, to get hacked. Uh-huh. What is your sense of how equipped or knowledgeable m- m- most reporters are to you know, what they ought to be doing or what they can be doing? I think most journalists know to be on signal on things and go to Proton Mail for some things. Mm-hmm. But at the end of the day, it's it's not necessarily as user friendly as you would want it to be. Mm-hmm. So occasionally you're going to have to slip up, uh, and that's where my concern is. You know, you talk to a source using the work phone because the burner phone's at home. Um, these are going to be difficult times for for journalists. Or or you send around a um, a copy with an identifier from the copy machine. Exactly. <laughs> yeah. Or, you know, your, your metadata and your Word document says who created it. Um, these, these are real concerns that I think, you know, it, you know, the Times um, has a, a, an on-staff cybersecurity um, expert. Uh-huh. Uh, and I met her as part of the ISIS files um, build-up, and, and she was phenomenal to kind of give you tips on how to do things. Mm-hmm. Uh, and I think every kind of – the problem is nobody has the resources like the Times or the Post. Like the big papers have those resources. Um, but if you're the Detroit News and you're trying to, to follow a public corruption case, um, you know, who's got your back on that? Yeah. Not to toot our horn, but Columbia is starting this new, there's a new center of ethics and security here that was just announced. It really is going to be looking at that where data and security kind of 
intersect for a journalist in, in trying to sort of help people get their heads around this stuff? Yeah, I mean, it's a gaping hole we haven't addressed. You talked about the need of, of an organization like yours to tell the story um, and not just sort of throw out a bunch of data and let people make sense of it. I mean, you can do that, but it's also helpful if you if you sort of help explain why it's important and what it means. I mean, that that's re- there's been several people have commented on this as it relates to to Mueller and his indictments and how he writes, um, um, how he writes up what he's trying to do, which are kind of novelistic and journalistic in their own in their own way. Do you do you do you agree with that? I do, and I think you know, I think a story is the only way to break through. Uh, you know, we track everybody who's ever been charged with ISIS related activities, and so we're at 177 right now. Mm-hmm. But I think I just said that, and your eyes closed over a little bit because you know what does 177 mean to you? Yeah. So instead, let me tell you the story of one of the 177, and you know where he's from, what makes him tick. You know, did he play pickup ball at the Brian Cole Rec Center at Minneapolis? Um, you know, what do you like to have for dinner? And what did he do when he joined a terrorist camp? Uh, and what is the in- intake form for uh, ISIS? You've got to be able to wrap it up, uh, or else policymakers are not going to understand it, uh, and they're not going to care about it. Right. I mean, it's a it's a lesson that I think even journalists forget um, when they're you know if they have a scoop that's based on data. It's not just it's not enough just to sort of pass on the data. You have to actually contextualize it. And I've actually heard a lot of complaining recently about even specific coverage areas like climate change. You know, is there enough? I mean, we can look, we can write about reports about the warming of the planet, but are we really sort of putting this sort of in language and in stories that people understand? I mean, I think arguably we're not because a big part of the public isn't really engaged with it. You know, when they did a, a, a one-year investigation into um, the U.S. government's failures at Hurricane Katrina, they actually hired um, a professional writer to write the final report. Mm-hmm. So all the staff would sit around and say, you know, this is what I've got. And, you know, that individual would then um, paint the picture. Right. Uh, and it's the reason why, you know, it's the reason why the, the 9-11 Commission report is the 9-11 Commission report. Um, one, it, it kind of identifies the failures of, uh, of the U.S. government, but it has those lines like failures to connect the dots, failures of imagination, things that stick with you. Yeah. Um, and, and that you read and you think to yourself, okay, I understand what they're saying. Yeah. Seamus, thanks a lot. It was great to talk to you. I appreciate it. Thank you. So you can read uh, more about Seamus Hughes and the program on extremism at George Washington University on CJR.org, where we had a story about um, pegged to this case uh, of the U.S. Coast Guard lieutenant, but there was a lot more about them and what they do. And you can read everything else we do at cjr.org. Keep your eye out for our latest print issue, which is out now. Um, It's called The Perception Issue, and it's terrific. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next week.